hey, we're talking Chapo. We are back. It's uh, me, Virgil, and uh, Chris. And uh, feel free to grab a mic if you want. Oh, hi. I'm allowing you to speak. <laughs> and uh, Matt is calling in from an undisclosed location. Matt, how's it going? Hey. <laughs> and we are off. Off to the races, just like our dear sweet father, Bernard, and all of his brethren. You know, he's out of the gate now, folks. He's running. All of the indications were there, all of the signs and portents, and now that thing that we've all prayed for has finally come to pass. Sir, prepare to receive harassment orders. Uh, Bernie has declared his candidacy this week, and quite frankly, we are all here for it. And more importantly, we are also here for all of the surus drama and just straight-up tea that's going to go down as a result of 2016, the sequel, Redux, 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 2020, 20, Bernie. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> we are marching over the glass ceiling in his revolution. And so my message to start off the show is Bernie's in the race. You know you know how we feel about that. We've, uh, we've placed our chips down all in on uh, Bernard. He's in the race, and uh, it's time to tool up. And those of you who are dreading this conflict are weak. Weak. Uh, those of you who are saying, I can't believe we have to live through another 20 months of like the stupidest online discourse imaginable, not to mention the broader media discourse. But I say, actually, it's good, and let, we love it. Let me nip this in the bud. I've heard it from, you know, friends that, you know, oh, I like Bernie, I agree with Bernie, and I don't doubt that. But they say, I just I just wish he wouldn't run again because, you know, of all the drama that's going to create. And I, and I, I got to tell you, you have posters cowardice right now. You have you have shell shock. You're that guy in the World War One picture with the big wide eyes like somebody needs to slap you across the face and tell you to get back in there. Yeah, like we're General Patton and we're hitting you and saying that you're a coward, basically. And you're you you are in this place of honor among these wounded warriors and you're saying that you have you have poster shock get out back on the battlefield coward and i just want to say like since 2016 you know it, it's it's gotten better i mean you should be thrilled to be in this position that you're in now because our opponents since 2016 uh their brains have become even more pudding like and soft and watery and our brains have gotten incomparably stronger through a you know through a strict regimen of posting, drug use, Fortnite, polyamory. We have, we have honed our minds into a weapon, and now it is time to you know go to war. So let's see where do you, where do you want to begin with uh, with Bernie? Ooh, I liked uh, I like Clara Jeffrey's post. You remember that one? Uh, remind me. <clears throat> this is Clara Jeffrey, editor of Mother Jones. A very early test for Bernie is if he and his surrogates speak out loudly and repeatedly against supporters doling out online abuse in his name. If he slash they do, he's serious about being more than a purist spoiler. If not, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Just ends there. If he's serious about not talking about anything other than uh, Bernie cheaping 420 uh, sending me pictures of corn cobs. Then he's serious. <laughs> if he just spends his day as basically Twitter tech support yelling at a bunch of stoners, then he's serious. 
He wants. She wants to speak to the manager of the Bernie Sanders campaign. <laughs> Do you know what your employees have been saying to me? But uh, the, the day. Also, was- you can't be a spoiler if you run in the fucking party. By definition, uh, I think these people. I mean, we've mentioned it before with Weigel. I think what these people really want is for Bernie to run as an independent candidate in the general election. They would love that. Yeah, the, they want they they want that just so that they can yell at him all the time. That's all. And the people who vote for him. But Claire is a good example of what you're talking about, Will. Your opponents, uh, they they've they've gotten weaker at the posting wars. And yeah, I know. And 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 you are and you are strong now. You know, we've been we've been training. We've been this is the day we've all been training for is here. You thought I was mad. (laughs) What you call hell, we call home. And that's one of the great things of, you know, marching in Bernie's army is that there's no Geneva Convention. You (laughs) it's just more fun. My friend was telling me earlier today, you know what? It's great being a Bernie bro. You get to dunk on people, say whatever you want. And he's right. Why not join the winning team? Well, there, I, my, honestly, it just, they just sound a lot like the, you know, the, the mealy mouth never Trump people from May 2016. It's like, you realize everyone on the Trump train is having way more fun than you, right? Or the fucking, or the fucking anyone who's a, calls themselves a conservative right now and isn't full QAnon Pizzagate. Like, that's the fun stuff. Uh, I did like uh, on the day it was announced, it was like, as uh, I forget who said, I think it was Crushing Board said, it, it, that day was like D-Day for Resistance Wine Moms. <laughs> and they were manning the pillboxes on uh, Utah Beach. <laughs> um, but what I, lo- what I loved about uh, Bernie Day, uh, B-Day, if you will, was just the flood of posts that were just like, B asterisk R N I E woke up content warning B Ernie content C W B um yeah just as Matt alluded to just like uh people who were confessing that they had spent all morning at their therapist's office because Bernie um announced he was entering the presidential race and they all had flashbacks to 2016 and I'm like yeah no we've been living in the flashback we love the flashbacks. <laughs> you only adopted posting. We were born into it, molded by it. Um, by the time I saw pig poop bars, I was already a man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about another. Um, I just all, all your all the favorites are coming back, and you know this is just the eternal recurrence of 2016. And I'm saying, get used to it. All the same people are going to be there. We're going to be there. All the stars are here. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Bernie, uh, within 24 hours of announcing, what was his haul in, in, in funds raised in one day? It was $5.9 like $5. million. $5.9 million from around 200,000 individual like donors, yeah. which is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Not as much as Ron Paul made in one day in 2007, though. <laughs> How much did he make? Uh, it was over $6 million. Okay, well, still very impressive nonetheless. Um, he's, well, it's, it's hard to give... Yeah, but scars. none of this is Krugerans or doubloons or anything. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was just going to say, it's hard to give small numbers do- donations in pieces of gold. <laughs> Certainly, Ron Paul, the most Iraqi dinars raised in a single day. <laughs> Well, he uh, Sanders has certainly lapped all of the other Democratic contenders in terms of, you know, uh, a one day money raising haul since, you know, since his announcement so far. Yeah. But that's like one Carlos Slim donation. Yeah. And, you know, again, but but he is maintaining 
a very good poll from small donations from a lot of individual donors. Yeah, I mean, the, is, the, the numbers are pretty staggering, and it's it's pretty clear that he is or should be considered the front runner of this race right now. Yeah. So to deal with that fact, you're going to have to have a take on this. Like you, you know, the money, the numbers looking pretty good for for Bernard. So here is uh, old favorite Amanda Marcotte. Oh yeah. Who uh, I says, think she blurbed our book. <laughs> she says, of course. Bernie's fundraising isn't really a surprise. Mm. His base of support is well-off white guys who have some cash to spare and are really hyped up to box out the up-and-coming candidates. But I suspect <laughs> the other, mostly female frontrunners, may have a quiet advantage. The same women who put in the time and shoe leather that won the Democrats' the 2018 midterms. Women may not have as much money to give, but they've been better at organizing and putting in the work. And I love it because immediately everyone pointed out to her that the average donation was $27. And she's like, yeah, that's what, like I'm saying. Like, you know, what a rich person could afford <laughs> to give. And, you know, once again, this is based on nothing. This is completely yeah. not borne out by any, you know, data or facts about who's giving what yeah, it's and from how her, much. It's from her mind fantasy of just sitting down and imagining things you don't like, which is what most of these people do every day. I just imagine a giant mental hospital where everyone has Bernie-related PTSD. <laughs> so it's real, and it's a thing I saw. But, I mean, it's also great because it's deeply offensive to, you know, anyone who's not a white guy who gave money to Bernie. Not a rich white guy. Yeah, yeah. not a rich white guy who gave money to Bernie. And I also liked, uh, what's his name, Orc Cop, Bright, Mr. Adam Pachinko Machine. <laughs> oh, he had a good uh, one. Yeah, he had a good one where he was like, he just responded... Who the fuck cares? And then someone replied, I don't know, around 200,000 people. And then he was like, fuck off. You're under arrest, sir. And I got the thing I like about Adam uh, Orc Cop Bright is that like he managed to sort of brown nose his way into like a completely bullshit make work job on the Hillary campaign. Just knowing deep inside him that he would be in the White House. If you haven't heard our Adam Pachinko machine takedown, we'll put in the episode description which one it was. Uh, but that was that was one of my favorite segments we've done on this show when he ran for a seat in like the, the Virginia State House and was endorsed by Bill Clinton because, you know, a Clinton always pays his debts and came like fourth in a field of six people in the primary. So he's doing good. And again, just a, a lot of people are dealing with with uh, Sanders entering the presidential race in uh, exactly the way you would expect them to, which is, again, reliving all of their traumas of having to live in a country that experienced an election uh, several years ago. And the other thing I really like about Amanda's take on uh, Bernie's average donation being, you know, indicative of what his wealthy white base of support is that it is still less than the average donation of every other Democratic contender, every other candidate, including yeah. Kamala Harris, whose average donation is like $38. So that's $10 higher, which ah. means her fans are $10 richer than the average Bernie supporter. Well, well I like the implication, or I guess she makes it pretty explicit, that uh, the white bros donated money to Bernie's campaign in order to box out the female candidates, which I'm not sure how that works. Well, by supporting a candidate who they prefer to the other candidates that they're boxing out the other candidates and boxing they're doing violence to the other candidates. Yeah, exactly. I, when I don't, you know, if, if you donated money, I hope you were thinking 
Oh, I can't wait to what this does to the other candidates. There is one star who won't be back on the anti-Bernie bandwagon this time around. I'm talking, of course, about friend of the show, Peter Dow, who's made a complete face turn. We've we've yes, we've recruited him. We've recruited him through uh, a parallax view style brainwashing. But uh, the agent Dow has been activated. And he is, he is in the field. He is, he is in country on mission right now. We cannot say where or what his mission is, but the Dow has been activated. Yeah, but you know, we, we showed him a Verit code like um, in Manchurian Candidate, and like that was, that was the trigger. You know, when people on the left say, you know, oh, I like Bernie, but I don't want him to run because of the arguments he'll cause, it's because they're afraid of uh, being upbraided by people like Amanda Marcotte. Why? It's fun. They don't want to be dude bros. And they, the don't wanna, is, and they don't want to be defined as a dude bro or a lady dude bro. Right. And, and, and my message to them is, you know, that's you should not derive your self-worth by being liked, by getting attention, pats on the head by people like Amanda Marcotte. You should act like a normal person and derive your self-worth from getting attention from podcasters. But uh, also to your point, uh, Virgil, about... Uh, all of the people who uh, content warning Bernie, who are uh, very um, shocked and appalled by this, I mean, there's an easy solution to their problems and and their feelings of fear and doubt, and that is just supporting Bernie and getting on the winning team. Yeah, like if they're afraid of winning and losing an election again, just choose the winner this time. Yeah, that's really it. So like all all of this goes back to 2016 and how like. B- Pretty much none of these people really know the true story of 2016 and exactly why Hillary Clinton lost. Probably the majority of them suspect whether or not they'll admit it publicly that Russia somehow hacked the vote totals and caused her to lose. Uh, they think uh, but the, the, their, you know, mono cause here is that the Bernie supporters who had been riled up by Bernie. And, you know, presumably, you know, taking orders from him in some way, uh, they deliberately either voted third party or voted for Trump, but they otherwise stayed home and didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And that's, you know, that's not true. That's not correct. There's reams of evidence that suggest otherwise. But they believe it's not just these people, but that nobody would have disliked Hillary Clinton or her policies had Bernie not existed. That's a that's a very important point, Virgil. Because when, when you read these people's things and you, you sort of absorb their, you know, I'm going to say, you know, real and deeply felt anger at Bernie Sanders because of what he supposedly did in the 2016 election, the gigantic shibboleth that they've erected is this idea that Bernie was a spoiler candidate and that he, he damaged Hillary such that, um, that he made his voters stay home and that he damaged her enough in the general election that uh, Trump was able to sneak by with a victory. And, you know, there's a couple things to say about that. One, uh, whatever, I think there was like whatever percentage of Sanders primary voters actually voted for Trump. And I got to say, if you did vote for Bernie in the primary and Trump in the general, you're a fucking dunce and should not be allowed to vote in any future elections. <laughs> but... Uh, it was a negligible number, and more importantly, a vastly smaller percentage than the number of Hillary Clinton primary voters who voted McCain in 2008, which varies from, according to exit polls, around 15% to, according to the Washington Post, as much as 25% 
of Hillary Clinton primary voters in 2008. Point number two that I'd like to make about this, this idea that Bernie uh, damaged Hillary. And we, you know, we're seeing this from surrogates like David Brock and Neera Tanden who are like, well, Bernie's in the race now, so I just want to say let's have a clean, fair fight based on ideas and not personal attacks. Bernie did not launch a personal attack at Hillary Clinton even once. He did not even run negative ads against Hillary Clinton. He gave her the most kid gloves treatment that any close primary race in the Democratic Party's history, probably. Let's contrast that with Hillary Clinton's treatment of Barack Obama in 2008, which was a scorched earth racist white working class campaign of which she stayed in far past being mathematically eliminated because, according to her, you never know what might happen, i.e. Robert Kennedy. So let's just remember that. I mean, Bernie stopped a primary debate to come to Hillary's defense on what would become her key weakness issue in the general election. Yeah, Bernie really fucked with up. the damn emails. That's what he said. The American people don't want to hear about the emails. Uh, and then uh, what these people are really saying, though, is they're saying Bernie made Hillary toxic in a general election by drawing a contrast between his politics and hers in a way that made her seem unlikable or him or his vision of the world preferable to hers. That is what they're talking about. This idea that they want to have a campaign based on ideas is horseshit. They will not accept anything other than complete and total capitulation from the left wing of their own party. And I, and I will say this. They believe that, you know, in their conception, Bernie is uh, some kind of uh, foreign saboteur deposit to America. They think he's like, you, you know, that uh, uh, propaganda poster of an incredibly Jewish Trotsky from the Bolshevik Revolution. That's pretty much how they view Bernie Sanders entering the Democratic primaries. And they think that he is like instigated socialism and he, you know, is the sort of Pied Piper of this that that led every young person to think, oh, Hillary's not cool or her politics are regressive or reactionary. The thing is, what they don't realize is that if Bernie hadn't existed in 2016 and had just been a straight coronation for Hillary Clinton, one is that the people who like Bernie's campaign would have either stayed home anyway, or I actually think this is the case, quite a lot of them would have been seduced by Donald Trump's former politics solely because he was the only candidate of any party who represented an actual break from the hell that we live in, even though his idea was to, you know, more hell, just a different kind of worse kind of hell. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, again, like this idea that they think it's like we've talked about this before. These people think having a sense of humor is like a cheat code. They also think having politics that are attractive to young people or anyone who whose soul hasn't been like ritually removed from their bodies is also like a cheat code. It's unfair of him to present a vision of politics that is appealing to voters, particularly young voters. And I think that's well, what because it's not going to happen because you're lying gonna... about it. That's their fundamental belief is that you are lying when you propose anything beyond the barest incrementalism, because that's the only possible thing to, that can be accomplished in our system. And so you are cheating to the degree that you're willing to say things that you cannot and will not be able to back up in office. Uh, and Matt, that is a perfect segue now to an article from the New York Times that I'd like to read to you guys now. And uh, for this, this is not an opinion piece. 
This is a straight piece of news analysis that was in the actual paper in New York Times. This wasn't on the op-ed or opinion section of the paper. And for this, I'd like to play a little game of spot the ideology, I claim. This is what we will do now. Uh, spot the ideology. And the two words we're going to look for here are pragmatism and purity. This is very important. Uh, you'll, you'll remember that Amy Klobuchar, uh, Amy 2 Targaryen, as Felix calls her, uh, got a huge amount of plaudits, plaudits and applause from the media this week because she got on stage at a town hall and said, uh, we can't have universal health care or free college because that's fairy tale make-believe stuff. And people applauded her for being telling voters no. She got a lot of credit for telling voters that the things that they want and are popular is not going to happen. For telling college kids this, the ones who said, who said, you know, hey, this is something I want. I'm just imagining the Shepherd Fairy poster that he'll make for her. That's, you know, the bold, you know, red, white and blue colors that just says fuck off under it. OK, so this is for, by Alexander Burns in the New York Times, February 20th, 2019. News analysis. On healthcare, 2020 Democrats find their first real fault lines. And this begins with a fairly neutral description of uh, the debate as it's progressed so far in the Democratic Party. So it says here, uh, the subject, perhaps predictably, was health care. At issue was just how drastically to transform the American system and how comprehensive the role of government should be. In one camp were a pair of blunt-speaking Midwesterners, Senators Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, both beloved by many liberals. False yet both dismissive of fellow Democrats' promises to create a vast new apparatus of government-backed health care. They endorsed incremental policy changes like lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare. It could be a possibility in the future, Ms. Klobuchar said of single-payer health care in a CNN town hall on Monday night. I'm just looking at something that will work now. On the other side was the party's most uncompromising economic populist, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, a self-described democratic socialist who promised nothing short of a revolution in health care with his proposal for Medicare for all. He held up Canada and Western Europe as working models for the United States. So that's the opening couple of graphs for this. And I want to note a couple of things. One, uh, Sanders uh, or like his, that, his side of the debate is described as creating a vast new apparatus of government backed health care. And the other side, as and also he's described as being the most uncompromising economic populist. He could just be described as an economic populist, but he's described as uncompromising. And oh, what's interesting bad. here is that Sherrod Brown and Klobuchar, are, they're, they're not tagged as being uncompromising in their view of the world and healthcare, which is that you know we have to pragmatically create, I don't know, access to different tiers of Medicare buy-ins. They're not uncompromising in that. That's the compromise worldview. And Bernie's is an uncompromising one that's about creating a vast new you know, government uh, sector for healthcare, which is true, but the healthcare sector, private as it exists in America today, is also incredibly vast and some might say radical if compared to the rest of the Western world. Yeah. Going on, it says here, Yet the exchanges over healthcare hinted that those ideological divisions may not stay buried for long. 
As the Democratic primary field develops and grows, the party is headed for a fuller public conversation about the role of government and the scale of their own ambitions. Again, that's, I would say, pretty accurate to say, but... Sure. Um, and, you know, that's that's a good thing. That's actually kind of impressive to me because, you know, if it hadn't been for, you know, Bernie's campaign and the people organizing to make Medicare for all, you know, put that on the table, make that a, 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 make that a priority... Uh, th- there would be no discussion of healthcare right now. Maybe some, maybe some, you know, plank about prescription drug prices or importation or negotiating them. But that's about it. They would have said, you know, well, we did our job in 2011, so or 2010. So I, w- I actually want to add on that because this is something I saw uh, Matt Iglesias, uh, Matty, talking about uh, the other day uh, that he fundamentally disagrees, or I think in his words, hopes he's lying. When Bernie says that he wants to create a political revolution to power his goals, uh, and he thinks that that's just not realistic, and you know hopes that that isn't actually Bernie's analysis of how he will create and use power if elected uh, or if he wins a primary. And to that, I say he pretty much single-handedly injected the idea of Medicare for all into the debate, which is now the grounds on which the entire party is fighting over. And I mean, it's not a revolution, but you got to say, like, looking at uh, the DSA increasing membership a thousand percent in the wake of his candidacy. I mean, everywhere that he goes in his wake, a real movement starts. And like, I would have to say that his view of the system of creating this revolution is not wrong in how he operates and how he makes space in the political system. But uh, but just to go off that and speaking of ideology the ma- the maintenance of our current status quo is never described as revolutionary exactly. or requiring let's say violence to uphold and maintain right because when you say revolutionary that that in, you know that implies a certain level of uh, upheaval and overthrow mm-hmm. whereas the ma- the maintenance of the shitty system that we're already living under uh, there's nothing revolutionary about you know neoliberal politics or its stranglehold on our government Right. As it's happened over the last 30, 40 years. So continuing on in the New York Times, but the debate over health care may be unique in its potency. It mirrors a larger struggle among Democrats over how daring their message ought to be and whether promising to rapidly expand social welfare programs is the best way to defeat Donald Trump. In the past, Democrats have tended to nominate relatively moderate candidates, with even nominees like former President Barack Obama espousing platforms far less radical than the one favored by Mr. Sanders. Polls show that Democratic ideas for expanding government health care are popular, but the key details of a single-payer system can make voters uneasy. Uh, We have discussed this before. Uh, That is broadly true in that uh, something like single-payer health care does poll very well. But then, as we've discussed, when you talk about, you know, the, it would necessarily require you losing your employer-backed health care, it gets a little bit shakier. I think these are problems that need to be confronted head-on and now. No, by... no, you give up immediately, idiot. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, once, once I read that poll, better give up on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here, here's where it gets good. Jared Bernstein a liberal economist who served in the Obama administration, ding, 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 (laughs) said the distinctions between Democratic candidates had less to do with where they want to take the country than how and how quickly they aim to get there. 
Their core priorities were largely identical, Mr. Bernstein said. This is coming from an economist who presided over the you know Barack Obama, the Obama administration, the ACA, the bank bailouts, et cetera, et cetera. He's assuring you that their core priorities are the same as yours. He continues, he, uh, quoting from Mr. Bernstein, the candidates who are trying to carve out more moderate positions are essentially saying, I think we get from where we are to where we need to go through incremental steps. The others are saying, no, we're into giant steps, Mr. Bernstein said. On healthcare in particular, he said, the real difference between the candidates on this is whether you believe we get where we need to go on healthcare through incremental change or by leapfrogging to something much more universal than we have. Folks, do not cut in line. <laughs> if, you are, if you are leapfrogging to get where you want to go, you're doing it wrong. What does that mean, get where you want to go? There's no consensus on where to go. I mean, most of the candidates are just, they have to, they have to say they support Medicare for all uh, because that's what's popular right now. They don't want to go anywhere. No, exactly. What they want is to avoid this entire debate, but since they have to have it because of someone like Bernie Sanders and to a lesser extent Elizabeth Warren and, and the general you know, leftward insurgency in their own party, they have to deal with it. So whether it's the Pod Save Johns or Jared Bernstein's, and we've discussed this before, what they're going to try to say is to assure you that everybody wants the same thing. But the fact of the matter is, Amy Klobuchar doesn't want a no. single payer system. Are you no. fucking kidding me? They want to avoid this issue entirely. They they would much prefer to stick with what we currently have and just not talk about it. Yeah, and that's the thing. There's no incrementalism in terms of health reform right now. The ACA, that was incrementalism, and look what happened to it. It's, it's, it's a binary choice. You're either going to have private health insurers or you're not. And not only that, this question of incrementalism becomes even more insane when you talk about climate change, which is, let's be <laughs> honest, an even bigger problem than healthcare at the moment. And there is no incremental steps to get where we all want to go with regards to continuing to be able to breathe and drink water on this planet. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. If, if there is some if, if you were to pitch me on some incremental change that you could sneak in somehow buried within it is the total some time bomb that's going to destroy private health insurers, make them all insolvent and prime for a government takeover. I'd hear you out, but that doesn't sound like Klobuchar's plan here. I just wanted to say one more thing about incrementalism, that it's fundamentally disingenuous because the people who say like, well, I want to see what we can accomplish now. They then don't have a further like this isn't part one of a five step plan to get to Medicare for all. It's like, oh, we're going to lower the age to 55. And that's it. So it, like it, it's fundamentally disingenuous to say we want the same things, you know, because they're stopping at the next place and they're going to consider that an accomplishment and then hope to move on from this debate, but it, it's, it's a completely undermining of the idea of Medicare for all. No, well, Chris, right. Well, you're just right. You're just going to add more people who have health care and then don't care about the issue anymore. Well, yeah, no, Chris, you're exactly right. Uh, it's not, it's not a five step plan to get where we all want to go for them with all of this disingenuous bullshit about like, you know, Medicare for some plus extra, it's a one step plan to not, talk about this shit yes, to, anymore to that, that to is up. that is what they that is the end goal for people like klobuchar or Neera Tandon or fucking anyone else who is anything less than full medicare for all free at the point of access so back to the new york times uh if you haven't detected 
the sort of oaky notes of ideology with a little, maybe some tannins, maybe a slight bit of chocolate so far. Uh, I'm jumping ahead to the end, and this is where the hardcore shit really gets popping. Ms. Klobuchar, a more traditional moderate, highlighted a similar set of alternatives to a single-payer system on Monday, including greatly expanding access to the Medicaid program. She also pushed back on Mr. Sanders' proposal for a for free four-year college, calling it unaffordable and calling for expanded economic opportunities for people who do not attend college. If I was a magic genie and could give that to everyone and we could afford it, I would, Ms. Klobuchar said, underscoring her assessment of the idea's practicality. Again, as Virgil pointed out, she got a huge amount of credit in the press for telling this to a room full of college students who are probably going to spend the rest of their lives ravaged by uh, student loans. In a field stocked with charismatic liberals, false, I don't, I don't know who is charismatic <laughs> in this race at all, uh, there is considerable risk for any candidate who attempts to deflate the grandest hopes of the left. Even voters who do not demand Sanders-like ideological purity could opt for any number of alternatives if they are put off by a reality check of Klobuchar-like bluntness. Okay, there, that, that's, that's the nub right there. Sanders and his supporters are demanding ideological purity, and Klobuchar and Sherrod Brown are dealing in reality check bluntness. Yet, for Ms. Klobuchar and Mr. Brown, if he runs, giving unwanted news to the Democratic base may amount to a bet that voters will reward them for their candor. There is some reason to believe that wager might pay off in an election when Democratic voters appear less concerned with ideological litmus tests than with defeating Mr. Trump. So a couple things here. This idea that uh, Bernie is demanding ideological purity, but the right wing of the party is not wedded to any particular ideology is also insane. But more than that, there's this idea that, again, this idea of incrementalism and pragmatism. Pragmatism is a strategy that you employ to achieve a political goal. It is not an, an, a goal in and of itself. If you just believe in pragmatism and keeping things as slow as possible all the time, that's just conservatism. That's the, that's the definition of political conservatism. The second point, and I've heard this line uh, brought up quite a bit recently, is this idea that uh, telling voters no and giving them a reality check about the things they, they want or wish to achieve um, by voting for a politician uh, might pay off because the Democratic uh, voter appears to be less concerned with ideological litmus tests than with defeating Mr. Trump. Uh, I think I believe I heard the, the, the losers on Pod Save America uh, parrot this idea a couple days ago, where the idea is... Um, What's really important to the real Democratic voter, not the people on Twitter or the people who are already plugged into politics, all they care about is having a candidate who can defeat Trump. And one of the pod Johns was like, you know, if you go to any Democratic rally, you know, the conversations people are having are like a different universe than what's on Twitter, which, you know, I assume is true. If you are a person spending their weekend going to see fucking Amy Klobuchar speak in a fucking snowstorm, uh, you're probably a dummy. And don't know very much. <laughs> you're probably it's just, you're a dum dum. But uh, so I'm not surprised that you're less politically astute than uh, people who pay attention to this shit. But more broader, if your number one concern is defeating Donald Trump, 
wouldn't running on a slate of programs that are broadly popular among not just Democratic voters, but basically all voters? I mean, there are polls that show that even Republicans are in favor of something like a wealth tax, like not a majority of them, but a good like 40 percent of them are at least in favor of it in theory. And similar things bear out among independents and even Republicans for something like Medicare for all. The other thing is this. Even people who follow politics a lot, even people like Nate Silver can't predict the future and they don't actually know who is objectively, um, you know, better able to beat Trump. So what chances your average dum dum have to suss out, oh, which person is more, you know, more likely to uh, unseat the president? So don't worry about it. Well, what the thing that makes me want to pull my fucking hand brain out of my head is that that was the logic of a ton of people who voted for Hillary over Bernie. Yes. Hillary was was the pragmatic candidate. Hillary was the best chance to beat Trump. Right. Yeah, that was that was that was yeah, that was the narrative for the longest time. It was just because somehow because she was qualified and had, you know, all of this, you know, power behind her. She was supposedly going to put together the best campaign organization. She'd been at this for so long that, you know, oh, okay, she would win. Even though, you know, she got her ass kicked in New Hampshire and was drew in the Iowa caucus, which she'd been preparing for for years at that up to that point. But as well, uh, keep in mind, this is also the same logic of the never Trump people in 2016. Uh, Anna Green. This is just the closing two paragraphs from the Times piece. Anna Greenberg, a Democratic pollster who is advising another potential 2020 contender, former Governor John Hinkenlooper of Colorado. Hinkenlooper, get in the race. He's, he's a looper. He's actually from the future. <laughs> Argued that Democratic voters are open to a range of methods for achieving their social goals so long as the candidates proposing them are progressive and sincere in their intentions. The framing of this, the framing of this, that there's a set of ideologically pure primary voters who have only one idea about how to address climate change or secure affordable universal health care is just wrong. Mrs. Greenberg said nobody cares about any of the process shit. No primary voters know how to fix climate change or get universal health care. So it doesn't fucking matter. All they have to go on are values. But what I love, what I love about that closing graph where she's like, Look, this isn't about ideology. And then right there in her statement is the phrase affordable universal health care. That's ideology. Wrong. Your average primary voters uh, idea for ending climate change is, I don't know, some kind of box that sucks in smoke and, you know, expels oxygen. Yeah, it's that thing from Mars Attacks that floats down from the UFO and uh, absorbs the nuclear blast. No, all they want is somebody who shares their values, who shares their ideas, and will just do it for them. Just do it. Just get it done. But that's where there's like this nexus between on the ground reporting about like what voters want at primary campaigns, which I trust is largely like we just need to get whoever will get this Trump guy out of here. But then there's the feedback by like all the media people who have uh, some kind of vested interest in not a hyper-progressive lefty candidate, yeah, yeah. then messaging all the time that w- that this might not be the quote-unquote electable candidate when the idea of electability is like totally dissolved in the last four or five years. 
Yeah, it's totally arbitrary. So and the, I mean, you know, frankly, you could also make that argument if you ever hear from someone persuadable that Bernie Sanders isn't electable. Say, OK, do you think Trump was electable? Well, what the fuck happened there? There you go. You don't know. Vote for him. Yeah. And it's like a, a self-fulfilling argument of pundits saying, like, look, all the voters want is somebody who's not electable and therefore is a, who is electable and therefore Bernie Sanders is not electable because, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, a feedback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it, it's all nonsense. But of course, it's also nonsense. The idea that, oh, the only thing I care about is someone who can beat Trump. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. Like, no, they have hosts of other concerns. And frankly, the more people get organized and they hear, you know, other points of view outside the D.C. consensus, the more they're going to demand more, you know, bigger things. So, yeah, that that New York Times uh, article is an object lesson in how ideology functions and uh, what you should be aware of uh, is always look for things that um, announces itself as unideological or pragmatic when in fact it is existing within the realm of pure ideology. And this I claim. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What's next? You guys want to talk about comparing uh, Bernie to some of the other uh, Democratic uh, candidates, in particular Elizabeth Warren, that was another thing that came up this week. Yeah. The idea that, you know, yeah, Bernie's good. He's, you know, he advanced the ball forward on some like more left wing populist ideas, but he's yesterday's news. And we got Elizabeth Warren, who's just as good and a woman. So really, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like you're you're playing yourself by by still supporting Bernie. And I mean, when I went on Majority Report, Sam Cedar asked me the exact same question. You know, what is the difference in practical terms between their platforms or legislative proposals? I mean, I, I, we, we talked about this when we were in Minnesota, but I think there is a substantive there is a substantive difference between the two in terms of how they see the political and economic system that we live in and their approaches to changing it. I think yeah. Warren is better than the average Democrat. And should we get to the end of this primary and she is the nominee uh, you could do a lot worse than voting for Elizabeth I, right, Warren. Right, that's the thing. She is. She makes this most sense as a as a compromise candidate. If you're that worried about the left wing of the party revolting in the general election, because I'm I'm confident the left would support her uh, very very strongly enthusiastically. But yeah, I mean, but like, look, all of the candidates, including Bernie, have some dings on their uh, political record and posi- and current political positions. You know. If we wanted a, you know, totally ideologically pure candidate, uh, we would support um, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela for president <laughs> of the United States. We have to support him. Uh, what's his position on Syria? <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, like, I, I think a Warren's wealth tax is is a good policy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that she's advancing that. But look, she has... As we talked about, she was a Republican until like 10 years ago. In the, 19, and, in the, in the late 1970s, Bernie Sanders recorded wrote and recorded a spoken word album about eugene debs and as we're seeing now we talked about this a little before all of the oppo on bernie and all the people that are like i hope bernie's the front runner because we'll finally get to rat fuck him and all the evil things he's done all just underscore really that bernie if anything was a lot cooler back in the 70s and 80s when he was openly supporting daniel ortega and the sandinistas and castro i'd like to see a little more of that um, yeah, I want 80s Bernie. I want 80s Bernie and early 2000s cinema. That's my unity ticket. <laughs> cinema. Oh, my God. Is there anyone who's fallen further than her? 
Yeah. She is making the case for the shittiest Democrat elected in the most recent election. Their campaign poster will just be a, a panga and an AK-47 crossed over a skull representing a dead American soldier. <laughs> the thing is, there is no one who's been writer more consistently for longer than Bernie Sanders has. And that, and that is a question of values and sincerity that, quite frankly, almost all the other candidates lack. The other one that gets brung up a lot, and I see people, you know, bitching that you know we don't talk about her, uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, gets gets a, you, we, you know, oh, why don't you support Tulsi or whatever? And you know, the the argument there seems to be that she is stridently against intervention in Syria and Venezuela, uh, which is good, uh, and she's probably stronger on those positions than Warren or Sanders is. But the thing is. Tulsi is not as good on foreign policy as you might think. In fact, she's quite bad on a number of things vis-a-vis Israel and much of the war on terror. I mean, she has a lot of weird, like, Hindu nationalist ties. Well, that's the thing is Tulsi isn't actually an anti-interventionist. She just doesn't support some of the interventions on the menu. She's not going to be president. She's not really going anywhere. And when Matt and I talked about it, we agreed that this is a net positive for Bernie because it leeches all the cranks pro and con leeches away their attention enthusiasm and people still get mad at us for saying that and what i've noticed is that every single person who got mad at our tulsi take is 100 percent a crank <laughs> it just takes five seconds of looking at their at their bio to realize oh you're a fucking crank okay got it you right. know best of luck to you the thing about warren is you know, uh, I, I, you know, believe she's very sincere as a as a reformer. And there are differences between Bernie and Warren and their styles. And as well, I, I would say their core beliefs about this country. Uh, I've heard it said that Warren, if Bernie is Debs, then Warren is more of a, a Brandeis progressive, uh, which means, you know, she was sexually experimenting at Brandeis. <laughs> that being said, imagine for a second that, you know, uh, no, there is no difference. There's absolutely no daylight between Bernie and Warren. Why should you get on the Warren train then anyway? It's not like she's very well positioned to win the nomination right now. She's not exactly this universally like political mastermind. Well, this gets back to the idea that people are trying to sort of blackmail you out of participating in the primary process where it's just like the, the whole idea is you choose the person that is most aligned with your values and beliefs you let it ride and hope that they can go the distance and then you know uh then when the general election comes around if you don't get your wish then you, you know you make the decision whether you want to support the whether you think it's worth it or goes enough against what you believe in to sit out the election or maybe even work for the person who gets the Democratic nominee. I don't know, but like we're a hell of a far off from that. And it's just like this is the point of a primary. You can't just wish away this process of defining the candidates and their beliefs and what they stand for. So, yeah, vote for who you want to in the primary. And I think I happen to think Bernie is probably a head and shoulders better than Elizabeth Warren is. Yeah, at, at the moment. But I, I think Warren is certainly a much better candidate than Hillary fucking Clinton was or 
Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. Yeah. That's for Klobuchar. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And I mean, these aren't people who say, you know, oh, let's have a, a good discussion. Let's have a good debate about ideas. That's all bullshit. Your mind's already made up. Forget about it. You're not going to. Cory Booker isn't going to come in with the plan that saves everything. And we're all like, oh, we've got to support him now. He has the objectively best idea. Now, that's that's all nonsense. That's not how not any of this works. And that, and that also and, speaks to a strength of Bernie's over the uh, other candidates is that anybody who can come in with good ideas that might enhance their profile, like Elizabeth Warren's, uh, uh, you know, child care uh, and early childhood proposal, which came out today, which is very good and would be very helpful for a lot of people. Uh, but more so the candidates like Booker and, and Harris, who could uh, roll out new policy platforms. I mean, Bernie has the advantage for having had the same platform for 40 years yeah, and exactly. like wins that realm of the debate every time. Which, you know, speaks to what uh, the, that pollster was talking about, a bit an issue of sincerity. Right. And as well, you know, what is central to Bernie's ideology is a consistent critique of this economic system of for Warren, it's a critique of this kind of capitalism. For Bernie, it's a critique of capitalism as capitalism. That, I think, is the probably the most important difference between the two. You know, despite their various platforms and, and proposals, I think Virgil gets to the heart of what the actual difference between Sanders and Warren is and why Sanders is preferable to Warren. And, you know, he is the best position right now to win the nomination. The thing is, you know, you say it's like 20 months till the election and it's what, 12 months until the first votes are cast in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, Bernie is someone who won the New Hampshire primary by landslide last time around. I'd say call that a must win state for him. And he's someone who signaled that, yeah, he's going to go and he's going to compete in Iowa again, where, uh, you know, he obviously does well in caucus states. I mean, it's not inconceivable that he wins both. And, uh, you know, goes into the next round of contests with a great deal of momentum. But right now, the people who are going to decide those contests aren't paying attention. They might remember, they probably do remember Bernie, because Bernie has the highest favorable ratings among voters overall in the uh, on the Democratic side of the equation, comparable to Joe Biden. But, you know, after he announces, we'll see how long that lasts. So when you see these debates online with these, you know, these cranks and you know, morons, so on and so forth, who don't like Bernie and have just made up all sorts of reasons why, you know, you don't have to really interrogate it that much. It's just, you know, they just in their heads just, oh, Bernie's bad. That's the bad thing I don't like. To them, this campaign is a consumer choice. And I've seen it actually said, put out, uh, laid out in, in extremely explicit terms that, you know, okay, well, well, hey, we don't have to settle for the old white guy. Uh, there's a black man and a black woman and a gay veteran. Uh, so you, you're reading a menu right now of the identities that you want to side with in this election. Like, all of this is, is just frivolous and meaningless to these people. It's not a life or death struggle as politics ought to be and that it can be for most people. For the Bernie Sanders campaign, he's going to have money. He's going to have volunteers. He's going to have the resources and the and the the, the know how to compete across the board and to hopefully import a new kind of politics, a politics of class struggle. Speaking of the uh, the the laundry list of candidates and the uh, wide array of options they offer us, one of my other favorite 2016 commandos, Tom Watson 
He's now lost Agent Dow, who's now on our side. <laughs> Tom Watson been sort of left, sort of a bit adrift, tossed about in the maw of politics in this election. He had one of my favorite posts this week where he got very, I wouldn't say mad, but deeply concerned and disappointed with Ben and Jerry's because they endorsed Sanders the day he <laughs> And he was just like very troubled by the ice cream guys, you know, considering all the other flavors that are on offer, why are they going with vanilla? I he, mean, he didn't say that, but that's what he was. That's basically what he said. He's won the Cherry Garcia primary. Yeah, so I mean, these people, they don't like Bernie for any serious or intelligent reason. Chances are, uh, though, for a lot of them, Bernie is is against their particular class interests. Uh, so, you know, forget about him. It's 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 this thing is decided by people who aren't paying attention and especially a lot of people who have never voted before. Yeah, that's also really important. And I mean, those are the ones if you're if you're very committed to helping Bernie Sanders win as a volunteer or as a donor or, 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 or someone who considers yourself marching in his revolution, uh, I, I'd say those are the people that you need to go out and reach. And I'm certain that that's a priority for his campaign. It's not the boomers who have been brain poisoned by MSNBC and the Internet. OK, so switching gears, I would like now to end the episode uh, by doing uh, by diving into an interview uh, that was just done in The New Yorker this week by Isaac uh, Chotiner, who is a guy, he used to be at Slate, now he's at The New Yorker, and he does have an uncanny knack for getting some of the most sententious gas bags alive to reveal themselves as absolute morons through <laughs> asking very very simple questions of them. He, he's a very talented interviewer. And uh, if you want to learn how to just basically drain a swimming pool and then get someone to do dive headfirst into it, uh, check out Isaac Chonater. He just did one with Max Boot that is hilarious, but we've been boot heavy over the last couple of days. We've reached our boot limits, I'd say. Boots uh, on all feet. Yeah, boots on the ground. There's been way too many boots on the ground. Uh, and not not enough for Max Boots liking, but yeah, enough for but, ours. You know, if, if you've paid attention over the last couple of weeks, you probably had your fill of boot. Too much boot. And I want to talk about uh, another figure that he interviews in uh, just this week in The New Yorker, a guy named Victor Davis Hansen. Victor, that uh, name is so familiar to me. He Okay, Victor Davis Hansen was a... He is um, ensconced at Stanford... And he is a military historian. He won the National Humanities Medal, which was given to him by George W. Bush. He is considered a very serious historian of uh, the classical era of, of Greek and uh, Roman times. Uh, when I saw you making fun of a uh, military historian for a second, I thought it was that guy from the Naval War College, Soft BTW. Oh, Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. was one of the this internet guy things is actually, that first got me uh, like following a bunch of you guys. He no, he's actually more more of a serious historian than soft by the way guy. Yeah, he's hard by the way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is sort of Vic. Uh, this is this hard guy's, by the way core history. This is you know, so Matt had to go, but you know, Matt and I will remember Victor Davis Hanson from the the blogosphere Bush era as the guy who would always compare George W. Bush to Pericles, <laughs> or would always reach into antiquity to uh, dredge up some heroic standard through which you know neoconservatism can sort of uh oh, standard for them to God. carry sort of victor davis maximus meridius <laughs> gladiator oh. hansen 
he loves gladiator films. He's like Ralph Cifaretto in The Sopranos. <laughs> Strength and honor. He is a complete lunatic and also um, a fraud and a moron who has now uh, become one of the most prominent sort of intellectual supporters of Donald Trump. He has a book coming out now that's just called The Case for Donald Trump. He just does this like, you know, American greatness, conservatism and comparing some utterly mediocre conservative politician or military dipshit to you know, Cincinnatus or Julius <laughs> Caesar or something. Augustus. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you, you can always tell a historian is good if they have a, one single lens uh, or period of history through which they analyze and compare every single other event ever. And, and again, he is at the like the highest echelons of like smart people, conserv- like the, the supposedly smart people who like Donald Trump. Like I said, senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, which is like a, you know, a big deal, like high academic conservatism um he also he also like in addition to the classics he also has a huge bug up his ass about immigrants from central america and mexico oh he lives he he runs it he has a vineyard in, in southern california i think that he is convinced is being overrun by illegal immigrants who are stealing from him ah, the, the modern etruscan yeah and uh <laughs> he, he and when you know it, he goes into it in this interview with isaac hey i'm sorry i gotta piss again sorry you fucking idiot. I, like, I had three of those. Why do you drink so many so much fucking fluid? It's important to be no, you're too hydrated, Virgil. I, I probably drink as much seltzer as Virgil does. I just am a little more discreet about it. <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm good oh, for yeah, another. We're still recording? Yeah, we're still going. Okay. I, I'm good for another five minutes. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to get into this interview, but the, the thing to remember about Victor Davis Hansen is he is someone who is thought of in conservative circles as being like, one of their brightest minds, like a, a, a serious historian of military history and antiquity. Uh, if you remember back during the Kavanaugh thing, when we talked about that idiot Ed Whelan and his doppelganger theory, he's one of those kind of guys who <laughs> talked about in sort of hushed terms oh, as are among the best and brightest in the conservative movement, which, you know, even among themselves are aware that they are all slobs and morons uh, who are just, you know, churning out work. But like this is a guy who was thought of as one of the smartest people. Funnily enough, funnily enough, uh, even though he wasn't an academic, uh, they thought the same about Paul Manafort. <laughs> really? Yeah. So she was, you know, he was a smart political operative. Well, this guy is thought of as like a, a really genuinely smart historian and sort of observer of uh, the world. He, but okay, let's go into this interview. So Isaac asks him. He goes, "I want to start with a quote from your book. You compare the president to others you admire in American history, writing." What makes such men and women both tragic and heroic is their knowledge that the natural expression of their personas can lead only to their own destruction or ostracism from an advancing civilization that they seek to protect. And yet they willingly accept the challenge to be of service. Yet for a variety of reasons, both personal and civic, their character not only should not be altered, but could not be. Even if the tragic hero wished to change in the classical tragic sense, Trump likely will end in one of two fashions both not particularly good, either spectacular but unacknowledged accomplishments followed by ostracism or, less likely, a single term due to the eventual embarrassment of his beneficiaries. I wonder how your training as a classicist informs this passage, but I also want to ask, is our flawed, sinful country not worthy of Donald Trump? (laughs) Victor replies, Victor Davis Maximus Hansen Gladiatorus replies, No, I don't mean that as to the latter. I mean that is how human nature is. So 
if you talk to people in the military, the diplomatic corps, the academic world, and just to take one example, China, they will tell you in the last two years, they have had an awakening. They feel that Chinese military superiority is now to deny help to America's allies. They believe that the trade deficit is unsustainable. <laughs> they will tell you all of that. And you are almost listening to Donald Trump in 2015, but they won't mention the word Trump because to do so would contaminate that argument. What I'm getting at is he looked at the world empirically. Empirically? Yes, empirically. And he said, this is what's wrong, and this is what we have to do to address this problem. But if I were to ask anybody at Stanford University or anybody I know that is a four-star general or a diplomat, what caused your sudden change about China? They would not say Donald Trump, and yet we know who it was. All it took was every general watching that Huffington Post supercut of Donald Trump going, China, 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 300 times. And they were like, maybe we should look into this. And he goes, do you feel that in some ways he is a hero out of Greek myth? Yeah. As long as we understand the word hero. Americans don't know what that word means. Because they're cowards. Yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> because, because they're in villains. Sense, he's talking about a big sandwich. <laughs> they think it means you live happily ever after or you are selfless. Whether it is Achilles or Sophocles as Ajax or Antigone, they can act out of insecurity. They can act out of impatience. They can act out of all sorts of motives that are less than what we say in America are heroic. But the point that they are making is, I see a skill that I have. I see a problem. I want to solve that problem, and I want to solve that problem so much that the ensuing reaction to that solution may not necessarily be good for me. And they accept that. Well, this guy hears about the Problem Solvers Caucus. <laughs> what I want to get out to here is here is a guy who reads the Iliad and then looks at Donald Trump, you know, wandering uh, with a diaper, a full diaper, wandering through the Rose Garden, talking about what he saw in Fox and Friends that morning, and thinks. This is just like Achilles and Ajax. The, the funny thing the, is... Or, or Wiley Odysseus. <laughs> Donald Trump is a kind of the American Odysseus in uh, one sense. What, which sense is that? Uh, doing incest. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I kind of buy his, his argument or his own weird reasoning uh, that Donald Trump is like a, fits in with a, this great man of history theory uh, except he, he sees him as uh, tragic and maybe the in the classic sense and also the sad sense that he is a, a, vict- a great man who is a victim of his own uh, you know hubris or flaws or vices. But when the real sense is is that Do- Donald Trump is a great man of history and that he is he is the singularly stupidest person that is perfectly stupid for this moment in time. Not only that, Donald Trump has never been victimized even once by any of his manifest and numerous personal flaws and character traits. Yes. He has gotten all the way to president of the United States without ever having even a hint of the kind of uh, tragic realization that, you know, Oedipus or any, yes, or, you know, exactly. any, any of the, the heroes of Greek mythology have had to, you know, face up to or face consequences up. I yes. mean, Achilles fucking died, you know? Yes. Not not a threat, parody. Uh, reciting classic literature. Reciting classic literature. Uh, this is just, you know, it's in the it's in the Iliad, folks. Yeah, Trump, uh, because based on what I know is Achilles' heel to be, uh, Trump will, his tragic downfall is going to be sticking a fork in electric shock socket. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Isaac continues, you don't have much to say about child separation, the ban on certain Muslims, Charlottesville, the more controversial aspects of his presidency. Are these nicks on a glorious record, or are they actually accomplishments? 
I look at everything empirically. <laughs> I know what the left said and the media said, but I ask myself, what actually happened? Also a great a tell of a great historian when they lead in a sense be saying, I work in the realm of pure facts and only uh, judge what I see by my eyes. I have no analysis or ideology beyond relating the truth simply and forthrightly. Well, he says, I asked myself, what actually happened? There are a billion Muslims in the world, and he has, I think, six countries who were not able to substantiate that their passports were vetted. Trump's final travel plan limits or prevents... Oh, this is like in brackets. Trump's final travel plan limits or prevents travel from seven countries. Not so empirical now, huh, asshole? We didn't even, in the final calibration, base it on religion. I think we have two countries that are not predominantly Muslim. And he goes, Isaac says, it was very clever how they did that. (laughs) And he goes, yeah. And that's one thing. As far as separation, I remember very carefully that the whole child separation was started during Barack Obama. The policy of separating was a Trump thing. That's another Chodner. Yeah, uh, yes. not exactly empirical, but uh, yes. he goes, it was used by Trump. It was, unapolo- it, it was unapologetically said, this came from Obama, and we are going to continue to practice deterrence. As someone who lives in a community that is 90% Hispanic, probably 40% undocumented, I can tell you that it's a very different world from what people are talking about in Washington. So much empiricism going on right there. I, I have had people knock on my door and ask me where the OBGYN lives because they got her name in Oaxaca. And the woman in the car is six months pregnant and living across the border and given the name of a nice doctor in Selma, California, that will deliver the baby. Right, the seven train out into Queens. <laughs> he goes, this has happened more than once? It has happened once, but I know from people who, co- I know people who come from Mexico with the names of doctors and clinics in Fresno County where they know they will get for free Twenty to thirty thousand dollars of medical care and an anchor baby. My ha- Mr. Chodner, I have in my hand a list of fifty individual doctors who will deliver anchor babies, no questions asked. For twenty yeah, and then give you twenty or thirty thousand dollars of it's free medical it's care. Free, hey, it's free medical it's care. It's free medical care. And he goes, uh we'll give them all this medical care and an anchor baby. I know that's just supposed to be an uncouth thing to say. And he goes, just a bit. <laughs> and they will be here. And I am talking right now. I have a guy, a U.S. citizen, tiling my kitchen, and he does not like the idea that people hire uh, hire people illegally for twelve dollars an hour in cash when he should be getting eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars. I like that Victor doesn't mention what he's paying this guy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he could be paying him twenty dollars an hour, but I highly doubt that's what he's doing. It's also amazing that he's so deep into the the, the Periclean Trump that he his even as you read it through this interview, his speech pattern sounds. Trumpian, and I'm just imagining him giving his history lectures of, be, of being like, "Folks, this Caesar, he accrued too much authority around, around the from the polis, folks. The, the 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 millions they want to have a dialogue. Very bad. No, the only dialogue is strength. These Trojans, they're not sending their best folks. <laughs> what are these gifts? But when you make these arguments, they are just brushed aside by the left or the media by saying, "Oh, these are anecdotal or racist or stereotype." And then Isaac says, "Right." People hear a story about someone knocking on your door wanting an OBGYN, and they say, that is anecdotal. (laughs) And he goes, Charlottesville was the last one you were going to address, Trump saying that they were good people on both sides. That was very clumsy to say, (laughs) but there wasn't a monolithic white racist protest movement. There were collections of people. Some of them were just out there because maybe they are deluded and maybe they are not. It was truly a rainbow coalition of white nationalism. (laughs) And he goes, I don't know what their hearts are like. But they did not want statues torn down or defaced. And then Isaac goes, history buffs, really? He goes, yeah. You can argue what 
you can argue that what was okay in 2010 suddenly was racist in 2017. What is he talking about? <laughs> Yelling the Jew will not replace us in a major American city? Uh, I think that was actually considered pretty crazy in 2010 as well. Which is why it's such an amazing interview because this guy comes in to talk about you know the great the link between the uh, the endless undying classics and our modern uh, Augustus Donald Trump and within two paragraphs is screaming about anchor babies falling about, out of, of about women knocking on his door asking for like donde esta la OBGYN <laughs> yes uh, and again like uh, by the way about that story did he did he tell this woman where the doctor was or did he just let her wander I mean yeah I mean he seems like a fucking monster he, he gave so, her a yeah, copy this, of the Aeneid and told her to be on her way yeah. this fucking guy is complaining about the the hordes of Hispanics overrunning California, the barbarians at the gates. Uh are complaining that his community is now 90% Hispanic. When this fucker owns like a vineyard there, yeah, something like yes. that, and it hasn't been like pillaged and overrun. Actually, Instead, these people are yeah. coming over asking him uh, because he's like a fucking pro Yelp reviewer where to find the OBGYNs. I mean, again, if, th if this is the worst thing that's happened because of this barbarian gall, like, in, you know, the vandals or Germanic tribes sacking our country is just people politely asking where the doctor's office is or tiling your floor. I mean, Jesus Christ, dude. So this is the best. I, I'm skipping ahead. He goes to the end. He goes, talking about Trump insulting Mika Brzezinski or Ted Cruz. And, and you know, he, yeah, the good stuff. That Trump yeah, did. the good stuff. That Trump <laughs> the does. heroic stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, he says that, you know, uh, this is just what Trump does. It's crude, but it's just like essentially he picks his targets very wisely. And he always he sort of goads people into responding to him, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, right. If someone accused your dad of killing JFK or said that your wife was unattractive, you might get a little. And he goes, I think so. But if you go back and look at the worst tweets, they are retaliatory. What he does is he waits like a coiled cobra until people attack him. And then he attacks them in a much cruder, blunter fashion. And he has an uncanny ability to pick the people that have attacked him, whether it's Rosie O'Donnell, Megyn Kelly. There were elements in all those people's careers that were starting to bother people. And Trump sensed that out. I don't think he would have gotten away with taking on other people that were completely beloved. Colin Kaepernick. People were getting tired of him, so he took him on. All that stuff was calibrated. Trump was replying and understood public sympathy would be at least 50-50, if not in his favor. And he finally, he just says, no, I mean, if you're going to attack a woman as ugly, you want to make sure you have at least public sympathy on your side. He closes by saying, I think so. There are certain, wo certain women that may be homely. <sighs> there you go. Yeah, okay, okay, Grandpa, see you next year. <laughs> <laughs> that is the intellectual vanguard of the Trump right. As, as, you know, creamed corn is just spooned into his <laughs> mouth by, a, you know, a, an immigrant home care worker. The thing is, is that like there are the, the things in that argument that are not inaccurate, like the way that Trump handles like public attacks does have the, the canny ability to always come from a side of like whiny defensiveness that aids him in the, the end. But to yeah, he's like a coiled cobra waiting for someone to attack him. Then he says, you know, Megyn Kelly, so fat, so ugly. He's like, my God, how this this this. This Caesar yes. just yeah, no, this carrying is, the fucking favor of the lower classes with such brilliant turns of this phrase. Is what, uh, this is what Achilles did to yes. Hector, is that he waited for Hector to be like, uh, your heels, very, very bad, very small. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he just came back and was just even more bitchy to him in yeah. a... You know, in a in a, in a, a statement given to Homer. Yeah, but yeah, it, Homer, uh, Trump cleverly susses out what people are starting to suspect about a public figure, like that Rosie O'Donnell is fat. <laughs> 
and then Megan and then Megan Kelly bleeds once a month. Oh God. Uh, but so, yeah, just ascribing any anything more than just being a, a whiny asshole with a national platform to anything that Trump does, it just immediately puts you into the realm of frivolous thought. Such I, a realm of pr- frivolous thought. I mean, again, who knows what the future holds? But thus far, I would say confidently that Trump is the exact opposite of a tragic figure. <laughs> Because he'll, except for the fact that he does um fuck kids, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, because he'll he bumbled his way into the highest uh, uh power through doing exactly what it, he wanted. But with there no is opposition his entire life, and will get out, and will be uh, immediately laundered into uh you know the conversation of among our best presidents. But there is absolutely no pathos or really anything in his life or yeah. brain at all. No. So there you go, Victor Davis Hanson. That's one. For, that's a deep cut for you, but I very much enjoyed that interview. Uh, check out uh, Isaac's interview with Max Boot, where he gets Max Boot to basically say, "Well, yeah, genocide is bad, but you know, in the Cold War, you make tough decisions." Yeah, I realize that it's impossible, and like as Matt said, it's impossible to go back to the pre-Trump era. Like it's impossible to go back to an era where we have just have a normal president. So I just support having a senile, brainless president forever. Just, you know, not a racist one. I agree. Joe Ford, no. president. Yeah, You're that's just so no, we just, we have to have a, a tweeting Chauncey Gardner president forever. And that's the only way that the energy in this universe will stabilize. Yeah, but instead of the brutish callousness of Trump, it's just a president who goes on Twitter and says like, dang, who do you guys think is going to win the voice this season? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that got uh, any Felix character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that about uh, wraps it up for uh, today's show. Put a bow on it. (laughs) But uh, this Sunday, in addition to our weekend episode, I hope you will tune in uh, with us for a Oscars stream. Unlike the Super Bowl, we're not going to do it live, but we are going to do a. We are doing it live. Well, Well, we're doing it live. Well, we're doing a live stream. No, we're doing uh, I hope you will be watching the Oscars this Sunday, but I hope that you will tune in both before and after the Oscars for a pre and post Oscar show featuring yours truly, the host of Chapo Trap House. You will get a tribute to the greatest Oscar host of all time. Tribute to movies. Billy Crystal's. Uh, you will get me and Matt's real Oscar predictions and Virgil's um, spurious, uninformed ones. No, they're real and good. <laughs> and you'll join us uh, before, an hour before uh, air. So t- tune in 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our pre-Oscar show. There is no host this year, so we will be giving you the Oscar monologue and performance that should take place if they were to get smart and hire us as a host. Um, some sacred cows, yeah, they're going to be slaughtered. <laughs> uh, these Hollywood bigwigs, guess what? They're going to be light, very gently ribbed in song format. Uh, and then tune in after the Oscars are over for a full Oscars post game, breaking down all the winners and losers and scoring Matt and I's Oscar cards to see who will win and win the title of King of Movies for 2019. So... Hope to see you then. Tune into our Twitch stream on Oscar night. Chapo Trap, uh, twitch.tv slash Chapo Trap House. Yes. Tune in for a celebration of the motion picture industry. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.